1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all the, his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that, may, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, my, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Andy. Welcome. It is good to see you all here this afternoon, this morning, still. Easter is one of those high days of the year, isn't it? It's exciting. Our family enjoys uh, the privilege of Easter. Every year, my wife plants. I don't know if any of you have social media. I warn you not to look at my wife. She doesn't update it a lot, but she's done this before. She'll show this little thing. She'll, she'll plant jelly beans in the grass. Saturday night, Easter morning, up come lollipops. So, I bet you didn't know that's what happens. Last night we planted nerds. <laughs> Seems appropriate for our family. Um, 
I'm not sure exactly what comes up when you plant nerds, but of all the silly things that we enjoy on the Easter holiday, dressing up, uh, flowers, family, it's a good day because it's the day we celebrate our Lord. And I hope that is the core of your joy, that the gifts he gives us, all the little things we enjoy, whether it's candy, whether it's family, whether it's the social stuff, that the, the center of the reason we enjoy a day like this must be because of the hope we have because of what this day means. If we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to um, just suggest you maybe by um, example that what Paul does for us in especially the first uh, handful of verses, if you look down in verses 14 through about verse 22, he's ruminating on what it would be like if Jesus hadn't raised from the dead. It'd be a little bit like if you've watched It's a Wonderful Life, one of the best movies ever done. In this movie, George Bailey has serious circumstances that hit him hard, and he's at the point of quitting. He's ready to commit suicide, and Clarence's guardian angel erases him from history and shows him what his city, town, and friends would be like if George Bailey had never lived. He sees his wife not doing well. He sees his community not doing well. His brother, who he rescued when he was a little boy, dies. His brother ends up being a war hero, so more people die because his brother had died when he was young and wasn't able to be a war hero. He sees the evil banker that had been pressing on him has, in fact, oppressed the town. And George Bailey realizes that his life had meaning and value that in the moment of darkness he couldn't see. Paul does a much better, richer job of showing us what life would be like without Jesus having resurrected. If you look back at the text that we just read, look in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, notice, they're not saying Jesus isn't raised. What are they saying? There's no resurrection at all. And really, probably more along the lines of no bodily resurrection. They think we get raised as spirits and we live as spirits, but there's no physical body that gets raised from the dead. So Paul jumps into that world with them and he says, verse 13, so if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised because there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then what do we lose? We lose Jesus' resurrection. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, and he starts running with that thought. What does it look like if Christ hasn't been raised? If we do a Clarence George Bailey moment and erase Jesus' resurrection, where would you be? Paul will walk us through this. And so in the work of God's Spirit, as Paul is writing for the Corinthians, he's also warning us of a few things. First, not only is the resurrection central to our hope, if you were to go back to verses 3 through 5, he gives the gospel. Now, some of you aren't, like, you hear gospel and you just think Christian mumbo-jumbo. You don't really know what the gospel is. Paul defines it for us in verses 3 through 5 with four statements, kind of bullet points. In verses 3, he says, For I delivered to you as what is first important what I also received. Number one, that Christ died for our sin. Okay, here's his bullet point gospel. He's not trying to give a whole theology of history. He's just saying, hey, here's the essence of what happens. Christ died for your sin according to the scriptures. 
Verse 4, he was buried. Later in verse 4, he was raised on the third day. Now into verse 5, he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. So he gives you four bullet points. What are they? He died, he was buried, he rose again, and he was seen by the apostles. That's, that's it. He's like, this is the gospel. If you don't know this, you don't have hope. If you know this and the implications of it, this is the center of our Christian hope. So what happens in this four-point kind of bullet point presentation where we have, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and he was seen, if we take down one? And like a cheap chair that's losing its leg, it all falls apart. It just collapses. So that's what he'll do in these following verses. So I want you to look in verse 14. The first thing we lose, the first treasure that we lose is our preaching becomes powerless. Our preaching becomes powerless. In some ways, on a general Sunday morning, the reason you're sitting in a chair listening to God's word is because you intuitively know through the conviction of the Spirit, the communication of God's word, that preaching changes lives. It has power. Look at what he says in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Some of you will experience this. You'll miss church for a series of weeks because of events in your life. Maybe you have a baby. That seems very common right now. Maybe, maybe it's vacation or maybe you have a work trip and you get yanked away for eight weeks and, and you feel that sense of spiritual tiredness and lethargy and weakness. I think there's something to that. It's not merely the preaching, but it's the assembly, it's the accountability, it's the fellowship. It's the whole complex of the um, events and work that Christ gives through the preaching and the ministry of his church. But Paul's very clear that preaching the word of God is powerful. In fact, in Romans 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the it's the power of God to salvation. He, later in Romans, he says that no one knows God and gets saved unless they hear the good news. And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news, the messengers that deliver the gospel, because this is the gospel that saves. Peter will call it the implanted word that's able to save our souls. Paul will remind Timothy to pay attention to the word of God because as it is preached, it saves and wins hearers. If we lose the resurrection, Paul claims that our preaching becomes powerless. He's going to explain why in a few moments we'll get there. Can we just mark in our notes, preaching is powerless if we have no resurrection. We are like three-year-olds trying to do spiritual surgery with a plastic scalpel and a plastic stethoscope. We have no ability without the resurrection to diagnose someone's real spiritual need or bring health and healing if the word of God is void of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are kids playing at surgery. Number two, our faith itself is meaningless. Okay, so he says, our preaching is in vain, and he continues, and your faith is in vain. It's not just as though my job becomes worthless. Your faith itself becomes worthless if Christ isn't raised from the dead. Your faith is in vain. In fact, 
If you come down to verses 20, and 22, 20 through 22 of this chapter, as he continues his discussion, he explains really clearly that the power of the resurrection is not only in play in the moment of salvation, it's in play throughout all of history. Verse 20, in, Christ, uh, excuse me, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man death came, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He uses this um, analogy between Adam and Christ. Adam represented us all. Where is Adam today? Like, where's his body, maybe I could ask? It's dust, right? Adam, Adam has not experienced the resurrection that Christ promises. And all those who, like Adam, sinned, that's all humanity except for Christ, experience in Adam's representation a death like his. So here in this passage it says, one man brought death. It says there's an analogy, though, because we also have the same hope that in one man, a different man, we can have a different representative, and in that one man named Jesus, we get what he got. Well, what did he get? What happened after he died? He was buried. The gospel says, and then he was raised from the dead. So if Adam represents you and he is still worm food, but we can have a different representative named Jesus and he is raised from the dead, we get a resurrection. Go back. But if he is not raised from the dead, what do you get? You also don't get raised from the dead. If Adam represents sinners who die and Christ represents the redeemed who are resurrected and we lose his resurrection, we lose ours. In fact, he'll call him first fruits. Do you know why you call something a first fruit? Because there's going to be a second fruit. I'm not sure what, what was said, but it should have been this thought that, that first fruits are like an appetizer. I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you go to a fancy restaurant and they actually serve you a four or maybe even a seven course meal. Have you ever been like to someone's house and they serve you food and you think it's an appetizer? <laughs> you think there's more coming and so you just daintily pick at it and you're waiting for the main course and then you realize, no, that's why they're thin. That's all they eat. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He's, he's the appetizer of God's resurrecting power, letting us know there's more good coming. But if, in fact, he didn't get raised from the dead, he tells us what's coming for us no resurrection. Our preaching is powerless, our faith itself has no purpose and no function because there's nothing true to believe in. In fact, as he continues on, so our preaching is powerless, our faith is meaningless, and we are lying about God's power. We are lying about God's power. Look in verse 15 with me. Now, Paul is speaking of himself personally, but I would think this is true of all Christians, especially those who communicate God's grace to their children or 
as ministers within his church. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ. Let's just stop there for a moment because that's a really clear thought throughout this text. In fact, as Andy was reading the Bible, I was realizing there's a really tangly section in there about um, he will hand over his kingdom to the one who subjected all things, not meaning the one who he subjected to, but and it just kind of gets all tangled. If you keep really clear in your mind, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead by God. So when we say Jesus was raised from the dead, and the Corinthians say, no, there is no resurrection, Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, we're not lying about Jesus, we're lying about whom? God. Because they're saying God raised him from the dead. So if you go down to that further section, let me just kind of untangle it for you. We'll come back to it in a little bit. Verse 23. He's speaking about the order of resurrections. There's more than one resurrection. Verse 23. Each in its own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when, I'm going to put Jesus in here because he, it, there's a lot of he's. So then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For Jesus must reign until God has put all Jesus' enemies under Jesus' feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that God is accepted, who put all things in subjection under Jesus. When all things are subject to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God, who put all things in subjection under Jesus, that God may be all in all. Hopefully that helps you unwind all the hymns and he's there. But here's the point. God is doing this powerful thing. And ultimately, God's power to raise Christ from the dead is such that it ultimately leads to God's defeating the final enemy, which is death. But if Christ isn't raised from the dead because God was weak and could not raise him from the dead, then what happens to death? It remains undefeated. So going back, why is the preaching powerless? Why is our faith meaningless? Because ultimately what we're saying about God's power to raise us from the dead is also a lie. Because if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, God is powerless over death. Death is more powerful than God. We remain not only dead when we die with our bodies, but eternally hopeless. Because God is powerless over death. In fact, I think we ultimately dethrone God himself. Because if God is incompetent and impotent against death, Look at that final line there that we just read. So that Christ hands over everything to God at the very end of verse 28 there, so that God may be what? All in all. Ultimately, the resurrection is about Jesus Christ getting supremacy over all things and giving that supremacy to God the Father so that God is the glorious center of all that is good. He is the glorious king over his whole universe. He is the one who receives praise and honor, not simply from believers, but from all people, condemned and saved. 
But if Christ is not raised from the dead, death wins. Christ loses. God is not all in all. He is not supreme over everything. And we push him off his throne if Christ is not raised from the dead. We are lying about God being supreme if Christ is still in the grave. That makes the resurrection huge. It means the resurrection is not something that we can toy with as though, yeah, you know, if you really don't like believe in the body, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's okay, you can still be a Christian. Not only can you not be a Christian, the whole of our faith falls down like a house of cards. We are lying about God's power. I mean, think about this, in Ephesians 1, Paul is praying for the Ephesians church. Here's how he describes his prayer. He goes, in every remembrance of you, in my prayers, I'm praying this. He goes, that your hearts would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of, his of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of, of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Okay, there's a complex series of, of, of phrases there, but essentially he is praying that we would have light to our eyes and that our hearts and minds would understand how powerfully he's working in us. How powerfully is he working in you? The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. So if we're lying about God's power, what hope do you have that you can overcome sin in your heart? What hope can you give to a depressed person who cannot crawl out of the darkness and the hole they're in? What hope do you have that if we send a missionary overseas to a different culture, that the gospel will penetrate the darkness and the lies of that culture with the light of Christ and save people? What hope do you have that tomorrow you won't deny Jesus? If our God is powerless over death, he's also powerless to transform you. But he's not. He is the God who raised his son from the dead and brought life to his dead body. The dead body that died because of sin has been raised to life by the power of God. This is not like Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus didn't die as a guilty sacrifice for the sins of all of the believers of all of the ages. Lazarus died because he was sick. Jesus died because God put on him the sins of all of the saints of all of the ages. And when he raised him from the dead, he broke sin's claim on him because the price had been fully paid. When Christ walked out of the grave, sin was defeated. God's power was on display like no other time in all of history. I would suggest to you that there was more power in the moments of Christ's resurrection than in all of the universe, in all of the moments where God said, let there be something. Let there be light. Light everywhere. Separate dry land from oceans. Speaks. And every whale and shark and minnow was made. 
And his might was flexed more in the moments he brought Christ out of death's grip and raised him to life than in all of the creation week. And then God says that work, that power's at work in you. I always find statements like that depressing and encouraging. The encouragement is God is at work in you with that type of power. The discouragement is you need it. Like we are that bad. Like God looks at us and goes, oh boy, I'm going to have to use resurrection power on this guy. Right? Like I, I, can't, I can't take this lightly. Sin is in play. He needs resurrection power to be more like my son. And he does. Okay, so right now we're at, at point number three. Our preaching is powerless. Our faith is meaningless. We are lying about God's power. Number four, we are not saved from sin. Right, look next, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are what? Still in your sins. It's not merely the fact that we're lying about God. It is that when we lie about God, the, the nature of the resurrection and the nature of the lie means that Christ not being raised from the dead, he's still under sin's curse. And if Jesus Christ, the curse breaker, is actually not broken the curse, he's still under sin's dominion, he's still in the grave, then we're still under sin's curse too. Because he's, he's our king, he's our representative. And he hasn't actually successfully paid the price for our sins because he's still paying the price. Some of you might have the disadvantage of using credit cards. And usually those companies will send you a bill every month you owe them money. Now when you pay off that bill, you know what they don't send you? A bill. Because you don't owe them anything. You don't have to pay anything. If Christ is still in the grave, he is still under the payment price of sin. He has not paid off the debt owed. Well, who is the original debtor? You and I. We're the debtors. And Jesus Christ comes along and says, hey, I'll pay for your debt. But apparently he didn't. He couldn't pay it all. So who, who's still accountable? If Christ is not raised from the dead, you are still in your sin. And if this is the case, all of the gospel unravels. Like a cheap sweater. Thread gets pulled, everything just starts coming apart. Romans 4 says, Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. His resurrection certifies. Our, our justification, our being righteous before God, if he has not been raised from the dead, in God's courtroom we are still sinners accountable to all of our sin. More than that, though, Romans 6 tells us that because we have been raised with Christ, we now have power to live for God. Here's what Romans 6 says in verses 13 and 14. Do not offer up any part of you to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. 
In other words, the resurrection not only promises me that I am justified, it actually breaks the power of sin. I mentioned before, our preaching is powerless, our faith is meaningless. The resurrection reminds me that when I sit and speak to someone, when I wrestle with my own sin, when I challenge a couple to be at peace with one another, when I tell a a family that their teenager still has hope because there is this thought, the power of the resurrection breaks sin. Some of you have been struggling with anger your whole life, and you're not doing battle with the power of God's grace. The God who raised Jesus Christ up from the dead is at work in us with that very same power to break sin and its hold on you. We can plead with addicts. We can plead with people who have habited sin for decades and know that if God's power comes to play, sin will lose. Do any of you feel like you can't stop sinning? I mean, I before mentioned my complainer is really good. I have a very active, strong, complaining mind. It's one of my spiritual gifts. I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weakness of mine to be able to see what's wrong in the world and complain about it, to see what's wrong in my home and complain about it, to see what's wrong in my own life and complain about it, but not actually fix it. That's sin. Well, how can I overcome just such a small sin that is so easy to let go, that is so normal and so justified? Honestly, if I talk to you for two minutes, you will join me in my complaining probably. I'm that good at it. How can I win against just a heart that sees how life could be better and blame someone for it? How can I win against that? You might be thinking of ways in which you struggle. And the answer is this. Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and the same power that raised him from sin's clutches is the same power that breaks you free from sin's clutch. And whether it's some small sin like gossip or complaining, or whether you think it's a red-letter sin because you want to do bad things to people, sin and Christ through the power of God crushes it. Not only that, he's not just the Savior who rescues us from sin. Romans 8.34 says that Christ Jesus, who died, has been raised and is now where? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercessions for us. So I mean, here's the incredible picture if we lose the resurrection. is we take Jesus from sitting next to God, whispering prayers in his ears for your sakes. And have you thought of that? Like, Father, I know I've asked you a lot this morning, but that church down in Bakersfield, they need some help. Don't we? Jesus Christ is pleading for you praying for your best, praying for good for you, praying for God to work. He is praying for you right now at the Father's right hand. And if we put him back in the grave, we lose the best prayer ever. He's in God's presence praying for you. And we put him back in the grave, we lose freedom from sin. We enslave ourselves back into sin. We lose an intercessor who is pleading for us. We, we strip God of power. 
that is at play in our lives if, in fact, Christ is not raised from the dead. So, our preaching is powerless. Our faith is meaningless. We are lying about God's power. We are actually not saved from sin. And finally, we are hopeless because death is final. We are hopeless because death is final. Look in verse, uh, we'll read in verse 17 down through verse 19. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Remember, a few verses later, it's going to say, all who are in Christ actually do get raised. But if Christ is still in the grave and they're in Christ, it didn't matter. They're still dead. They've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. Now, his point is not only that when you and I die, we get heaven, and therefore this life is a train wreck of misery and sorrow. I hope your life isn't. But his point is that all that we have placed our confidence and hope in is eroded. Some of you have family members that have already passed away. And you've stood at their graves, and you've comforted your soul with this thought. We will see them in heaven. Some of you have suffered miscarriages or the passing of a little baby. And you comfort yourselves with the thought that you will get to know this child and see this child in heaven. Over the coming years, this church is going to walk through funerals. And we're going to mourn with people who've lost loved ones. If they're still in the ground, and there is no resurrection. All of the words of hope were just fantasy and make-believe. And Karl Marx, quoted by Jesse Ventura, was right. Religion is just an opiate for the masses. It's a drug we take to make us feel better. But there is no real betterment. I have been at the funeral for all my grandparents, and all of them trusted in Christ. And we all were comforted by the fact that we will see these sweet loved ones in heaven again. And over the course of this last year and the last several years, our country has felt the sting of death and been more aware of it than ever. And I think we lose how significant the hope of eternal life is for comfort. Because our world lies to itself. I mean, people talk about crashing weddings, but just crash a funeral and see what people say, especially if you know the person's an unbeliever. You're going to hear a bunch of religious gobbledygook. Things like they're in a better place now. And your assumption might be, well, well were they a Christian? <laughs> no, <laughs> they were a good person, though. And if you know your Bible, you're thinking, then they're not in a better place. And we're comforting ourselves with false words. And our whole nation does it. I mean, speaking for the other pastors, I'm sure they've had to do funerals or comfort people through the loss of a loved one who didn't know Christ. And there's this awkward desire to give them comfort when there really is none. I did a funeral for a sweet Catholic family who is very um, financially needy, and so they had cremated the uh, loved one. 
And because of that, the Catholic Church wouldn't let them do the ceremony in the Catholic Church. And they couldn't get a priest to do it. And so I was one friend away, and they asked me to do a funeral. I'm like, well, I'm not a Catholic, and I'm not going to do a Catholic funeral. I'm just going to do a normal funeral. <laughs> That's what I'd like to think I do. I made, I made the member of a church very nervous when I started out saying, you know, at funerals we like to give everyone hope. And we're like the parents of the little child who's had their goldfish go belly up. And they're about ready to do a funeral, and they're in the family restroom, about ready to flush Goldie down the toilet. And they're telling everyone, you know, this is all their kids, the family, like, hey, Goldie's in a better place. And I'm like, like fish don't live forever. This, this goldfish is not going to a better place. If we're talking literally, it's going to the sewer. This fish is not going to heaven. And it's amazing that we can't even tell our four, five, and six-year-olds the truth. We want to give them comfort. So we say things like this, Goldie's in goldfish heaven. <laughs> Have you heard of goldfish heaven before? Sure, it's somewhere in the pages of the scriptures. We tell our children the dumbest things, and they're like, oh, okay, good. Like, you know, it's so sad. We know we're lying to our children just because we don't want them to feel the sting of death. We get it. I mean, like, well, a heartless person is like, no, actually what's going to happen is this goldfish is going to flush down the sewer system. The enzymes are going to corrode and eat its body away. The goldfish is no more. Just get over it, kid. Who says that? You know, we're no different with adults. We're no different with adults. Coworker comes, they're brokenhearted because their favorite uncle just passed away. And they say something like, he's in a better place. And our mind and our heart goes, no, he's not. But we want to give comfort so strongly that we just don't know what to say. And Paul says, that's us. We are convincing ourselves that there's goldfish heaven for us. It doesn't exist if there's no resurrection. We are liars lying to ourselves for comfort. And it's a hollow lie if Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead. We're to be pitied. In fact, he goes on later. He says, we are in danger every hour. He's talking literally physically. He goes, we fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. We are in danger daily of dying. And why, why do we do this? Because what happens if your heart stops and you know Jesus? The resurrection is your hope. It invigorates a life of faith. If you have no hope in the resurrection, you're like a car that's stuck in neutral. You might have a great engine. You might have a great paint job. You might have the best AC in Bakersfield. It's going nowhere if it's in neutral. If you've lost sight of the resurrection, your car's in neutral. We are hopeless if we take away the resurrection of Christ. Not merely because the sacrifices of this life become meaningless, but because there is no comfort at all. It's just a myth. It's just a lie. I, I really appreciate the way the ESV translates verse 20. Okay, going back to the it's a wonderful life analogy, George Bailey gets to the end and he realizes how dark the world is 
if some of the good things that happen in his life are taken away from his community. How dark is life without Christ's resurrection? Our preaching is powerless. Our faith is meaningless. We are lying about the power of God and the grace we preach to others. We are actually not saved from sin. We're still in sin's power. We still have its penalty hanging over our head. We are still doomed to death and hell forever. And we are hopeless in this life because we've hoped in a false hope. We've followed a myth. That's dark. Verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised. He's been raised. He is alive. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back for us. Come to the end of the text here, the very end of the chapter. It's like Paul gets the end. You can see he gets a little happy too. Right? Verse 54. Now you could go back a little bit further. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I'm really thankful for that. My body will not look like it does now. It will be better. My body will be made fit for heaven, fit for eternity, no longer suffering the aches, the pains, the diseases, the sicknesses. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Not just the dead will be raised to glory, but those who are alive will also be transformed into glorious bodies. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body that is liable to death must put on immortality because Christ is raised from the dead. And the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The stinger of death has been taken out. The victory has been given to Christ, not to death, through the power of God. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe that in six days he made the whole universe and all that is in it. I believe that he permitted man to sin so that he would accomplish glory in redeeming and giving grace to sinners and condemning some. I believe that throughout all of human history, God is guided with purpose to lead us to the place where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and was born so that as God and as man, he could stand with us. As God, he was blameless. As man, he was one of us. As man, he was killable. As God, he was absolutely, perfectly, and infinitely good. So that when he died in my place, all of my sins were fully paid for. So much so that sin no longer had any claim on any of my sins because all of my sins were paid in all of their totality in the cross work of Christ. This is proven in the fact that death could no longer hold him in the grave and Jesus Christ, my Savior, is raised from the dead, living forever, seated, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, praying for me even now. 
I believe that Jesus Christ will one day come again and he will restore me to himself, giving me a glorious body, whether I am coming from the grave or from my feet. He will transition me so that when I see him, I will be like him because I will see him as he is. I will be glorified forever from that point. Do you believe that? Do you believe? Do you comfort yourself with these words? Do you remind yourself there's a resurrection coming? Does it invigorate your day? Does it lead you to open up the Bible, to read God's word to yourself, to hear the living word speak to you because it is God's power to make us believe and live for him? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming again? Do you believe he's going to raise you from the dead? Do you believe he can give you power over sin so that you might say no to the ways that sin calls to you? Do you believe? If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and he is, we are of all people most to be envied. Because we have Jesus, we have hope, and we will live forever with him. Do you believe? If you do not believe this morning, turn to Christ, trust him, and the resurrection hope is yours forever. Do not walk out of here without Christ being your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the hope of the resurrection. If we were to leave Christ in the grave, the clouds of depression, hopelessness, and sorrow would be reasonable. But as I can only imagine on that morning when you walked out of the grave, that there wasn't just a display of glory in that tomb, but the sun shone brighter. Because even creation groans waiting for its redemption. And in that moment, its redemption was secured. More than that, so was ours. And so as we stand in the presence of of our Holy Father on the basis of what Jesus Christ has already accomplished, we say thank you. We ask that you'd strengthen our hearts. Lord, it is easy to remember a lot about Jesus Christ and minimize his resurrection. I ask that you would renew our hearts by helping us to remember how good it is to have the hope of tomorrow and know that that can never be taken away to have no fear that death would rob from us anything. Its sting has been removed. Its victory has been defeated by Christ. And so we look forward to the future in which you may call us home. We may enter into those years of our life where our sight grows dim and our body grows weak and our tiredness enters our soul and we are ready to pass away in this life and still the hope of the resurrection can fill our souls with hope. Lord, I would pray that you would teach us to fight against sin because heaven is coming. Teach us to share the good news with our children and with our neighbors, because the hope of the resurrection can be theirs, but only in Christ. I ask that you would remind each of us that, forget that we live for a greater future, a kingdom that is not like this kingdom, but is holy 
and is without pain and is without death. Lord, help us to live for that kingdom and not get lost in the busyness of today and forget about the resurrection that is coming. Lord, train our hearts to hope. In Jesus' name, amen.